We give you a thanks, O oh God, for your holiness, your greatness, the wonder that you bring to us each and every day. May our hearts be lifted and inspired as we seek to be your people in the world, conveying grace and love to all we know and meet. During this time, O oh God, we pray that you would speak to us your word. May your spirit work within us that we might hear the truth you have for us this day. Through the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you are seated, I wanted to let you know, in the life of our church, we have an initiative taking place right now about small groups in the life of our church. They're called Connects, a little play on words, if you will. And our small group ministry that's launching is around gathering people into groups for spiritual life and discipleship together. They're not Bible study groups, they're not prayer groups, they're actually modeled after the Wesleyan class meeting in which we might share our lives together in faith in Jesus Christ. And so in the bulletin today, you'll see a QR code you can scan that'll take you to the sign-up sheet where you can become part of one of our small groups. And we also have paper ones, analog sign-up sheets. I know, crazy talk, I know. In the uh, foyer at the, uh, the Welcome Center, you can fill out one of the forms there on paper and we'll get those from you as well. We're getting to go in, we're about ready to go into our last week of signing people up for those small groups because we want to launch them by the end of this month. And so we hope you'll take advantage of that. Today, we're gonna to be turning our attention to a text that's about a small group and a small group that gathers together. And so I wanna focus our attention on this text in just a moment that connects us with this experience of connects with another small group. I just wanna embarrass somebody. I have a special friend with us today. The Reverend Dr. Paula Ferris is right there. And I used to work for Paula back in the day when I went to seminary at Fuller as the youth director at the church she served as senior pastor. And so Paula was really the first great preacher I ever got to spend time with in person. And a lot of what I know about preaching over all these years is because of Paula's influence on my life and also how worship works and what it should feel like and what it should be together. So I just wanna say thank you to Paula for all that you have done and glad that you could be with us today. That was some very nice golf applause. I'm very impressed. It was well done. So we'll uh, hope you get a chance to meet Paula afterwards. And um, we're going to be enjoying Sunday Cafe, as you know. And you're going to hear about that from Pastor Camille in just a little bit. Let's turn our attention to this small group. There's a small group that happens in this story in John chapter 21. And it's a good thing this chapter is a part of John's gospel because most scholars believe that it originally was not part of John's gospel. If you get to the end of John chapter 20, it sounds like that's the end. And then there's this epilogue, there's this piece in John 21 that was perhaps added by John, maybe by some of John's followers in his school, because there was a piece of the story that was so important that it needs to be included here. And it has been in the church's tradition for almost 2,000 years. And it's the story of Jesus appearing to his disciples at what's called the Sea of Tiberias, which is actually the Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus appears there to his disciples, he invites them to have breakfast with them. Now, in this passage of scripture, there's probably a good hundred sermons sitting here. Trust me, I've preached a couple of them over the years. But the part I want to focus on today isn't so much the act of them, the seven disciples going out to fish and throwing their, note on, 
their net on the other side of the boat and miraculously hauling in a catch. That's 99 sermons. The one I want to focus in on today is the one that takes place on shore. When Jesus invites those seven disciples to come ashore and sit and have breakfast with him, a breakfast of fish and bread. And at that breakfast, something is going to happen. And what is going to happen is a deep healing in the life of Peter. Now, Peter's name is Simon or Simon Peter. They're kind of used interchangeably in the gospel. So whenever you hear Simon, Peter, same thing, all right, for the sake of what we're going to be talking about today. At this breakfast, there is a deep healing that's going to take place. And it's this deep healing that I really want to focus on with all of us this morning. This kind of deep healing helps us understand the theme that we've been following throughout these Sundays after Easter called Unstrung. It's about how these episodes of Jesus's life after his resurrection unstring people, disorient them, bring them into a, a new way of looking at life that they had never thought possible before. And so rather than avoiding some of these tough issues that Jesus addresses after his resurrection, as I shared with you a few weeks ago, we're going to steer right into the skid and we're going to allow this text to speak to us. And today's text is on this deep healing that takes place over this breakfast meal that they share together. It says that Jesus has prepared a charcoal fire for the disciples, all seven of them as they gather around. And the words for charcoal fire in Greek are very important in which John has written because it's the same exact words that John uses to describe the fire that Peter was around days earlier when he denied Jesus three times. So John's trying to paint a picture for you that this conversation that's going to take place is framed against Peter's three denials of Jesus on that Thursday before Jesus' crucifixion and his death. Not only that, but Jesus appears to them at the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, likely in the same location where Jesus first called Peter to be one of his disciples. And so this place is filled with a, a rich narrative of Peter's life, including the moment Jesus called them to be one of his followers and the charcoal fire that's gathered. Their similarities are important and they're significant in the story. Jesus gathers them around and he breaks bread as he's done before. And certainly as he breaks the bread, those memories begin to flood back of the feeding of the 5,000, especially the meal Jesus celebrated with his disciples on that Thursday night when he broke bread, as we're going to do here just in a few moments together. Then Jesus asks a question to Peter. Remember, they're sitting in a small group. There's eight of them sitting together around this fire. Seven disciples, including Peter and Jesus. And then Jesus asks an important question. He says, Peter or Simon, do you love me more than these? Now, oftentimes when we read this story or have heard about this story before, we often think what Jesus is asking is, you know, Peter, do you love me? That's how we frame the question. But the actual grammar says, do you love me more than these? Do you hear the comparative element in the question? Can you imagine what it's like to be sitting there in a group of eight? Jesus looks across at one of the people in the group and he says, do you love me more than these? Who are the these? The other six sitting there. So if I could rephrase the question, if you'd give me this liberty, it'll help you capture the spirit of what Jesus is asking. Peter, do you still think that you love me more than these? 
Jesus is asking Peter whether he stepped out of the frame he was in before that fateful Thursday when he denied Jesus three times and whether he's in a new frame yet. Peter says, well, yes, Lord, you know, of course you know I love you. Peter still hasn't clocked it yet. It's not quite there. The deep healing that's going to take place in this conversation hasn't fallen together quite for him yet. Remember, Peter, before that Thursday evening when he denied Jesus three times, he was bold in his pronouncements of following Jesus, bold in his announcements, how he loved him more than anyone else. He would follow him to the end. Jesus heard all of these things from Peter over all of those years about how awesome Peter's faithfulness and love for him was. And then when push came to shove, what happened? Peter blinked around a charcoal fire. Hey, aren't you one of his companions, that Jesus guy who's inside right now? Peter's like, oh, no, 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 that's not, I'm not him. I don't know him at all. The switch from these radical pronouncements about his love for Jesus to his quick denial of Jesus help us begin to understand that the nature of love that Peter had for Jesus had not yet grown depth. And this conversation is going to begin to help Peter move into that space. Now, typically, when somebody brings up a difficult subject for us, imagine eight people sitting around a campfire. Jesus looks at one of them and says, do you love me more than these? It's like a really bad dinner party, isn't it? The awkwardness is kind of palpable. And so what happens in our own lives is sometimes we respond to these situations in three different ways. Here they are. The first one is we usually often respond with denial. Like, what issue? I don't know what you're talking about. We pretend like it doesn't exist. Uh, the other way we often respond is to deflect. In other words, we try to point the conversation in another direction. How about those mariners? We try to move the conversation elsewhere, or we begin to focus on other people to move attention off of ourselves in those awkward moments. And then other times there's a third response, destruct. And you've probably seen this at some point in your life, haven't you? Where somebody is in a position, or maybe you yourself have been in a position of touching on something very deep within you that may even trigger you. And the response is anger. Or the response might be bitterness. Or as we see all too often in 2023, rage. You see, Every time we see some of these symptoms of rage and deflection, what we call destruction, deflection, denial, it's speaking to something deeper in our lives, a deeper place where we need to experience healing and the kind of healing Peter needed to experience. Jesus' aim is twofold, <coughs> community and communion. And he's trying to restore both with Peter. So here's a question I might ask you to think about this week and wonder about. Where is Jesus setting the stage for a deep healing in your life? Where is Jesus setting the stage for a deep healing in your life? Well, let's talk for a moment about why this deep healing matters, because this deep healing fosters love. And for Peter, uh, what's at stake here is not his self-awareness. We are not practitioners of therapeutic moral deism. We believe in a God 
that has come to us in Jesus Christ and that this God that has come to us in Jesus evokes a response of love from us. Love for Jesus, love for God, love for the world, love for the people in it. So what's at stake here isn't just simply Peter becoming a better Peter. What's at stake here is Peter experiencing a deep healing, which yes, will make him a better Peter, but for the sake of the work that Peter will end up doing in his life, the fulfillment of God's call on his life. Jesus asks Peter three times about love. Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? See, the comparative is still there. He keeps asking him and probing him. And then it says after Jesus asked him the third time, what was Peter's response finally? John 21 tells us that Peter was hurt. Now we're getting somewhere. By the third time Jesus asked the question, Peter is now beginning to log what's going on. That what Jesus is leading him through is a process of healing of the three denials that Peter made so that Peter can be restored. And so these three questions Jesus keeps asking him are designed to help him to dive deeper, to foster a true sense of love to Jesus. Peter answers the question the same way every time except for the third time. He says, yes, Lord, I love you. And then he finally gets to this third time. It says when he was hurt and he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You see, the way in which he puts himself in this position with Jesus in that third response, yes, Lord, you know all things. So now instead of making his proclamations to Jesus as if Jesus doesn't know, Lord, I'll follow you to the end. What does Jesus know in that moment? I don't think you're going to follow me to the end. Whereas in this third response, Peter puts himself into, I, I hate to use the word submissive frame, but he puts himself into a frame of understanding that Jesus can see right through him, that there's nothing to hide, and that Jesus knows the very nature of love that Peter has for him. Now we're talking about the real kind of love that's at work in Peter's life. Now, there's a lot of talk that's been made when you've heard this story before about the different words for love used in the story. I talked about this a little bit in the podcast this week, so uh, just to explain it for all of you, uh, the, the, the first two times Jesus asks the question of Peter, he asks him, do you love me? He uses the word for love, phileo. And then the third time he asks the question, he asks it with a different word for love, agapao. Now, 400 years before the Gospel of John was written, those words meant different things. Phileo and agapao. We get the noun agape from agapao. That word familiar to you, some of you? By the time the New Testament comes around, and this era comes around, there's absolutely no difference between those two words. They're completely the same in meaning. So there's nothing to be made out of the difference between how Jesus asks the question. So this isn't really about what word Jesus uses as much as it is about whether Peter is going to become truly aware, not only of himself, but of Jesus, and that he's going to experience the healing Jesus wants to bring him. Peter's still carrying around the shame of his denials. God, there's so many of us just like that. I've done this so many times where I carry with me the shame of something I've done with another human being that I shouldn't have said or I, I shouldn't have done to them. And then I just pretend like it's not there. That's back to the denial, remember? <laughs> Jesus is helping Peter wrestle 
with the real issue of love in his life and how love is born out of this deep healing Jesus is inviting him into. And oftentimes we try to avoid it. Uh, 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 you might know that May 24, 1738 was the day that John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, famously went to a Bible study on Aldersgate Street in London. And it said that night that his heart was strangely warmed. Well, three days later, his brother Charles had the very same experience. His own heart was strangely warmed in its own way. And Charles Wesley, bless you, wrote a hymn about that experience. And I want to just share with you one stanza for the hymn, because I think you'll see how it connects with what this story in John 21 is about. Here's what Wesley writes, Charles Wesley. And shall I slight my father's love or basely fear his gifts to own? Unmindful of his favors prove, shall I the hallowed cross shun? Refuse his righteousness to impart by hiding it within my heart. What's at stake here isn't just whether Peter loves Jesus or not. It's whether the cross of Jesus means anything at all to Peter. Does he believe in the saving grace of God even for himself at that moment? And Peter starts to get to the bottom of it in this rich conversation. So a question to wonder about this week. What is the state of my love for Jesus and how can it be deepened? What is the state of my love for Jesus and how can it be deepened? I want you to take note what Peter's up to when this story happens. What, what's, what's he doing? Do you remember? He's fishing. So all of these days after Jesus' resurrection, he's fishing. I guess why not? But all of the things Jesus had talked to Peter about the things he would do in his life, he's not quite yet doing. And it's perhaps not as much maybe Jesus hasn't ascended yet, maybe that Pentecost isn't here yet. It's maybe for Peter that those events, his ascension and the Pentecost, won't really matter if Peter doesn't get to the bottom of this. That those events could probably come and go, but if Peter hasn't dealt with his need for deep healing in his life, those events will go right over his head. He's ready for ministry because of this story, because of the restoration that Jesus brings. And so let's talk about devoted ministry. And when it comes to devoted ministry and it being a, a curator of devoted ministry and the stories of devoted ministry, there's lots of people I think of. But one of the most important people I think of is Pastor Rick Reynolds. Rick, come on up. And he's going to share with you a bit of a story about how this principle is at work. As you may know, Rick recently retired as the executive director of Operation Nightwatch here in Seattle, a free Methodist elder. Go team. Rick, I'm going to turn things over to you. <laughs> Thank you. It's a little scary for you all to be faced with two preachers in one morning. But, um, so I, I want to tell you a story about my friend Walter. I met Walter in line outside of Operation Nightwatch. Um, he was seeking food and shelter one night, a homeless guy. And I was talking to him and he said, I just washed out of my ninth recovery program. He'd relapsed and they kicked him out and here he was back at Nightwatch. Nine recovery programs and he was drunk as he told me this. And he told me something else I'll never forget. He said, Pastor Rick, 
I've determined that never again in my life will I own a lawnmower. I looked at him standing there with his one bag, grocery bag of things, but I realized there was some kind of deep insight at this moment, you know, that his life was more than the things that he had once owned and lost, that he believed, even in his drunken stupor, that he was going to be all right. And so I invited him to meet with me the next day to see if I could get him into housing. And a, a miracle happened, he showed up. He moved into our building. He continued to drink and for three months, he was easily the most toxic drunk I've ever seen in my whole life. He totally wrecked his room during that time. I would find him passed out in the hallway, wrapped in a towel, covered in filth, his own filth. Time and again, the fire department would come and haul him off to the hospital because of his drinking. We had to haul out the furniture, the carpet, the pad, everything in his room and take it to the dump. It was by far the most unpleasant thing I had to do in 29 years of working with homeless people. And I have done a lot of unpleasant things. <laughs> so during, uh, during his time in the hospital, after one of his ER visits, he called me, said, I broke a vertebrae in my back. They've offered me 30 days of traction or surgery. I've chosen the traction. So he couldn't get away from me. Every week I'd go up with Father Kim, my coworker, and we would visit Walt. He would tell us jokes. He goes, how many drunks does it take to change a light bulb? I said, I don't know. He goes, just one. He holds on and the room spins. <laughs> and then he would get serious. He goes, I don't know why I've been doing this to myself. So I said, well, I'm happy to pray for you. He said, I need all the help I could get. So we pray for Walt. The next couple of weeks, we'd go up there. He said, I'm praying for myself. Keep going. After 30 days of traction, Walt came back to Nightwatch, a different human being, sober. He joined the Coast Guard Auxiliary. He set up boating safety classes. He volunteered at the Center for Wooden Boats. He had the keys in his pocket to the West Seattle Lighthouse. I don't think he ever gave them back. He gave tours over there. He was a volunteer at the Woodland Park Zoo, charting the activities of the tiger cubs, and he volunteered for one of the food banks who eventually hired him. Years after his resurrection, I said, Walt, what spiritual practice has helped you in your walk of faith? And he set up. He said, I get up every morning and I read the Psalms and I write in my prayer journal. I was amazed. Somehow, the worst drunk in the entire city of Seattle had come to meditate on the Psalms as a spiritual practice. I had asked that same question of our own beloved Mark Abbott. What spiritual practice has helped you in your walk of faith? And he mentioned his practice of praying and reading the Psalms. Somehow, Walt and Mark 
ended up at the same place. That's a work of God, a work of healing, deep healing. So I've been on this grand spiritual adventure for almost 30 years now, and I've learned two things. One, no one is beyond hope. We serve a God who raises the dead. God raised Walt. He lived his last 12 years as a sober man, doing good in the community, loving God. But what I've also learned is that there's hope for me. I don't have the same afflictions as Walt, but the problem isn't alcohol. Walt's problem, my problem, is a focus on self. We are all self-absorbed, self-centered, thinking of ourselves. Thanks be to God who raises the dead, who restores us to sanity, who grants us knowledge of his will and the strength to carry that out. Only in the divine presence are we granted healing and wholeness. Walt, Rick, and you, thank you. Such a great story, Rick, and I'm appreciative of you being able to share it with us. So much depends on healing at work in our lives. In the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, this is what's written in the seventh step prayer. Listen carefully. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my siblings. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. My friends, any, anything, any hope we have of God working in us and through us as individuals and as a church is going to begin with deep healing within every one of us. And so this morning as we come for communion, I simply want you to be aware of what you bring to this metaphorical campfire that Jesus has set for us. That was no mere breakfast, was it? As this is no mere meal, is it? So come carrying the heaviness of the heart today, the deep need for healing that we each have and as we come and share in communion, let's lay that at the feet of Jesus. Let's spend a moment together in silent prayer, and then Pastor Bonnie Brand is going to come lead us in communion this morning.